The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Well, the scripture divides into two great categories, and we've heard this before. There's milk and there's meat. And milk is the simple doctrine of the Bible, and the centerpiece of milk is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and we, we've learned to organize the, the milk of the gospel into four main categories, God, man, Christ, response. And we just share this again and again. It's what Marty and Chandler and, and workers all over the world have gone to try to explain in culturally understandable things, God, man, Christ response, that there is a God who made heaven and earth. And because he made heaven and earth, he has the right to rule as king over everything that he made, and he has given us laws by which we are to live our lives. And those laws are very clear and simple. You could organize them in the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods beside me. You shall not make any idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. Do all your work in six days and rest on the seventh. For God made heaven and earth in six days and rested on the seventh. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal or bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. And Jesus took that coveting and he, he went back to the commandment against murder and said, you may have not committed murder physically, but you've got a murderous heart, and if you do, you're in danger of the fire of hell. And you may not have actually committed adultery physically, but you have an adult, if you have an adulterous heart and you're looking at a woman lustfully, you are in danger of the fire of hell. And so he probed the inner workings of the heart and then organized all of the law in two great commandments. The first and greatest is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second is like it, love your neighbors yourself. We do not keep these commandments. We break them every day. And it is grace from God to see that, to know that that's true. For the second great category is man, the hum, human race. We were created in the image of God, and we were created to have a relationship with God. And to love Him and serve Him and walk with Him. But we fell into sin in Adam, our first father, who ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and in him the entire human race fell. And we were given a sin nature, and when we were able to understand the law, we broke it. We violated it. We violated the Ten Commandments. We violated the Two Commandments. We are sinners, all of sin, and fall short of the glory of God. And we are threatened with eternal death in hell, and we could not save ourselves. We've been singing about that all morning. We could not save ourselves. We needed a Savior. So the third point is Christ. God sent His Son into the world. Born of the Virgin Mary, lived a sinless life. He lived every single day of His life under the law of God. He obeyed every jot and tittle, every detail, perfectly obeyed the law. And the two great commandments, no one but Jesus has fulfilled them. He loved God with all of His heart every day of His life. He said, I always do what pleases Him. Always. And he loved his neighbors as himself. And he did that especially by going to the cross for us. Though he had no, committed no sin, he went to the cross and he stood under 
the fiery wrath of God. As I prayed, our God is a consuming fire. Jesus stood under that fire on the cross. And he was condemned for us, though he had committed no sin. And there was no deceit in his mouth. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And he offers to us freely a gift of righteousness and full forgiveness of all sins. And we are able to access that, fourthly, as we respond in repentance and faith. As we repent of our sins and as we trust in Christ, all of our sins, all of our sins can be forgiven. Now, you may be here today and you know that you've not crossed over from death to life, that you're not a Christian. And you just heard a moment ago, over the last few minutes, you just heard the gospel. That's the gospel. And it's milk. A child can understand that. And even now, as you hear what I've said since I've been up here, if you will look to Christ with the eyes of your heart, if you'll look to Christ crucified and resurrected, and you see a Savior, and you look to the law, and you know that you're guilty, that you have sinned, even now, you don't have to move a muscle. If you'll just trust in Jesus, all of your sins will be forgiven. And if you genuinely do that, a whole a whole river of righteous acts will start flowing, beginning, as we saw this morning, with water baptism. And then a commitment to walk in newness of life. That's Christianity. And that's milk. Anybody can understand that. But then there's meat. And what is meat? Meat is the harder stuff in the Word. The, the Word teaches us things that are hard to understand. Second Peter 3. Peter said that about Paul's writings. He writes some things that are hard to understand. That's the definition of meat to me. There are truths that are beneficial. God has told He wants us to know them. But you need spiritual teeth to chew them. It takes a while to get it, to understand it. I find it ironic that Peter said some things Paul wrote are hard to understand. Some of the hardest statements in the New Testament are written by Peter. So Peter also writes some things that are hard to understand. That's meat. Now, when we come to eschatology... When we come to end time teaching, you're in, that's meat. It is hard to understand. And I was, I was in my office just half hour before, or 20 minutes before, you know, the service began. And I just wrote out why. Why is eschatology hard to understand? Here's six reasons. It's not even in the sermon. We have like no hope of finishing Daniel, but I'm going to try Number one, eschatology is hard to understand because God intends it to be hard to understand. It's not an accident. It's not like he could, if only he could learn to make it simpler, etc. He intends to speak to us in language difficult to understand. He wants only the believers to get it. He could have written out such an accurate chronology with names and dates. Don't think he can't do it. Daniel 11 is the most astonishing chapter in the Bible displaying God's ability in detail to predict the future. There are something like 106 uses of the helper word will in the NIV, NIV 84, that shows future. This will happen, that will. 106 times the word will appears in that chapter. God is showing off. He can give meticulous details about future events. But he didn't intend to do that. Instead, he speaks in such a way that only believers will be able to understand and not all believers will equally understand, but those that really need to understand the most, they'll get it. We'll talk more about that at the end of the sermon. Secondly, 
God has spoken to us in apocalyptic, prophetic, visionary language. End time teaching comes to us in language that is not easy to understand. He uses symbolism. He talks about beasts and horns and oceans and winds and things like that. And it's just, it's not clear immediately. It needs interpretation similar to a parable. Apocalyptic, prophetic, visionary language and symbolism. Thirdly, he has scattered... The salient points in scriptures in different places in the scriptures. So you have to put them together. You have to reach over for, to Matthew 24 for some of this. And to 1 John 2. And to Daniel 7. And some definitely a lot of things coming from Revelation to put the whole thing together. It's scattered. So you have to do the work of theologians to put things together. Fourth, we have this problem of type and fulfillment. Things get acted out in time that are dress rehearsals of the final... And many people kind of get off the highway at that point and just say, that's it. But no, that isn't it. That's just a type or an acted out drama of something that's yet to come. And so like the destruction of of, uh, Jerusalem in 70 AD was not the end. Clearly not. There's been almost 20 centuries of history since then. But many commentators, godly commentators, will just get off the highway at that point and say, that was all talk. Matthew 24 is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and there's nothing else to say. Well, that's not true. So types, fulfillment, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Things that are acted out. Many antichrists, but one final antichrist. So you get lots and lots of these dress rehearsals. Hitler was a dress rehearsal. Very tragic and difficult, but he was not it. He died in the bunker, and history has continued. He was an antichrist, but not the antichrist. So we get these things. And then six, we have a complex story being told. Or fifth, sorry. (laughs) See? Can't even read my writing. Complex chronology. Complex. This is a hard story to follow. It's not easy to understand. Okay, number six, which isn't even on the sheet. Just thought of it in the pew. You have to marry together current events and exegeted scriptures. You have to line them up. When you see standing in the holy place the abomination of desolation... Spoken of by the prophet Daniel. There it is. There's in one verse the marrying together of current events with scripture. Hard to do. And many generations have sought to do it. And because of so many misfires and predictions that didn't come true and all that. Some people just want to kick out of the whole thing. All right. Now I get to begin my sermon. All right. For the second week we're looking at just the big picture of eschatology. We've stepped away from the series I'm doing in the book of Revelation. Revelation 12 and 13. We're right in between those. And I'm advocating here that Christianity is a unique religion in the world. This is apologetic material. When you are talking to Muslims, when you are talking to atheists, when you are talking to Buddhists, this is a a weapon of truth you can use. Christianity is the only prophetic religion in the world, ultimately. You could argue Judaism, but when they stopped seeing in Christ the fulfillment of all the prophecies, they kicked out of that. They got off the highway at that point. There are some pseudo-Islamic prophecies, but the more you research them, they just go away. They're not true. Buddhism, Hinduism doesn't even make an attempt because they don't care about current events at all. They're trying to get out of this world, this evil world, by denial and and saying it's all an illusion. So they're not even trying to make those kinds of predictions. Christianity alone does this. And God said again and again in the book of Isaiah, he does this and he's the only one that can do it. 
Isaiah 46.10. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Isaiah 46.10. He's saying the only one who can do it. Now there he's talking about Cyrus the Great and Persia and all that. But it's just a general principle. It's just true. He's the only one that knows the future. And then again, uh, Isaiah 14, 26 and 27, as we've quoted many times. This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed and who can thwart him. His hand is stretched out and who is able to turn it back. So God makes a plan and then his sovereign power orchestrates that that plan will certainly take place. And Christianity is the only religion that can do this. Now, in Revelation 12, we saw in that apocalyptic, visionary style of writing, a red dragon, who we are told plainly is the devil, Satan, that ancient serpent who leads the whole world astray, pursuing a woman who's in a glorious, radiant kind of depiction at the beginning of the chapter, who I think is best interpreted as Israel because she gives birth to the male child, and from, from the Jews came the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all forever praised, but because she's so radiant and glorious, it's like heavenly kind of Zion who gives birth to children, and those children are believers, Jew and Gentile alike, believers in Christ. And at the end of Revelation 12, the dragon, Satan, pursues the woman and her children, Revelation 12, 17 says the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And that rage has been going on for 20 centuries. There's been tribulation in every single century. And so that's that recapitulation as it was, so it will be. It's happening all the way through. But there's a great ramping up at the end such that Jesus said in Matthew 24, 21, 22, for then there will be great distress or great tribulation, unequal from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. So days of tribulation so great, nothing like them has ever been seen in the history of the world. And that does not line up with the events of the destruction of of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70 by the Romans. The Romans did that all the time. Yeah, they killed a lot of Jews, but that just doesn't line up. There is a yet future suffering that's coming. Now, that section of, of Revelation 12 ends with the dragon in Revelation 13, 1, standing on the shore of the sea. And what we're going to see in Revelation 13, 1, when I resume preaching through Revelation, a beast coming up out of the sea. And he had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns and on each head a blasphemous name. So this is culminating in the Antichrist who is coming. And that's what we're getting ready to try to understand. The beast is an empire culminating in one ruler who rules over that empire, that wicked empire, who will enact these great persecutions in the name of the devil. Though he doesn't understand he's doing it in the name of the red dragon. So the image of a beast emerging from the sea, terrifying and powerful, who assaults the people of God and in some sense is able to conquer them, that image comes directly from the book of Daniel. So we're going to look at Daniel this morning and get as far as we can. So I'd like to ask that you turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. We're going to begin there with the image of the beast from the sea and the little horn. And Almighty God has...
perfect plans, as I said, and is able to pull them off. I am not at all like that. I have no idea how far we're going to get. When this, this app tells me it's time to stop, I'm going to stop. I don't want to rush. I want to just try to explain details but not linger. I lingered already because I preached through the whole book of Daniel. And you can download those sermons and listen to them already. So I just want to do a flyover. But I already know. <laughs> I put myself behind the eight ball. It's my own fault. But we'll get as far as we can. Let's start with Daniel 7. And what we have in Daniel 7 is an image of beasts coming up out of the sea. Clearly connecting to Revelation 13. Revelation 13 begins with Satan the dragon standing at the seashore summoning the beast from the sea. Who ultimately is the Antichrist. That image comes directly from Daniel 7 in which Daniel has a dream of four beasts that come up out of the sea. And the sea is turbulent. The winds are ripping the ocean, shredding it and churning it. And up out come in succession one beast after another. And in that very same chapter in Daniel 7, we have interpreted the beasts are kingdoms. The fourth beast is a kingdom. So the beast equals a kingdom. Not an individual, but a kingdom. But the horns tend to focus on the ruler of that wicked kingdom. And in the end, there becomes a, uh, and such a close connection between the wicked ruler, the potentate of that wicked kingdom, and the kingdom itself. Like we would say in World War II, we are here to defeat Hitler. As though if you kill him, then the whole thing ends. Everybody knew that that wasn't true. That there was a whole Nazi war machine. A whole empire that had to be conquered. But everybody understood he was the head. And so it will be probably even more so in the days of the Antichrist. The control of this individual, the supernatural control he will have over the empire will be unparalleled in history. So in the end, the beast becomes one person. But it starts as an empire. If it, there weren't an empire behind him, there would be nothing to fear. He's just a guy on the street, on the corner, saying certain things and there's nothing to fear. But if he has a worldwide police state empire behind him now, there's something to fear. Now, the fourth beast in Daniel 7 is the most terrifying of them all. It had ten horns, just like the beast in Revelation 13. And one of those horns grew up, called the little horn. Now, horn, the, the apocalyptic or visionary imagery, the horn is a king. A, it's an individual, a focus of power. So you get that image. And this horn, called the little horn, grows up and supplants the other horns and had the eyes of a man and spoke boastfully. And this horn represents ultimately the Antichrist. The power comes from his mind and his skill and his mouth, not from his own stature, if you know what I mean. He's a conniver, a deceiver, and is able, that's why he's the little horn, able to supplant others, probably by assassination and trickery and other things like that. So look at Daniel 7, 8. While I was thinking about the horns, by the way, just methodologically, I can just tell the story I, and it won't, won't take much time. I can just tell what I think is going to happen going forward. And I'll just tell the story and not give any cross-references, any scriptures. But I want to teach you to root everything you think back to text of scripture. And that's what takes the time. So probably if you get anything else, just methodology and what scriptures to go look at. And you put the story together. All right, so Daniel 7, 8. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up before them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. The horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. So the eyes represent intelligence. And the mouth is a mouth. Arrogance and boastfulness. And this comes up again and again. Now in the middle of the vision, 
uh, four beasts, one after the other. I don't have to go into the four beasts, but that fourth beast and the little horn and all that. In the middle of this incredible chapter of Daniel 7, we have probably, I would argue, the most significant prophecy about Jesus in the Old Testament. I think it is. I think it's the most significant because Jesus again and again refers to it when he called himself the Son of Man. It was his favorite title for himself. So I think he's saying read Daniel 7, read Daniel 7, and then read Daniel 7. In the middle of everything, it's like this is earth, beasts, and all that. Now, meanwhile, up in heaven, we have a throne. And Almighty God, the Ancient of Days, is seated on it. This is God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. And he's up on the throne, and a river of fire is flowing from the throne. This is the judgment and wrath of God on empires who will persecute his people. And, he, and who will not worship him and this river of fire. And this teaches the, probably one of the main lessons of the whole book of Daniel, which Daniel taught to Nebuchadnezzar. God taught to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4.25. Don't look there, but this is what it says. That was the lesson of Daniel 4. The Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. So no matter what Satan says that he rules the whole world, he doesn't. God does, and he rules actively over everything. He's sovereign. And so right in the middle of Daniel 7, after the four beasts have been introduced but not interpreted, we have a vision of the throne of God and a river of fire flowing from that throne. It's comforting to us as Christians to ponder that. Now, if you look at verse 11, it says, Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. So there's, there's interplay between the horn and the throne. Horn and throne. So he's speaking arrogantly, and we got this, it's right in the middle of the throne section. I kept looking until the beast was slain and the body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. So the empire, the kingdom, will be destroyed. Has been destroyed, but there, that's just a dress rehearsal. Will be destroyed again. Finally. Blazing fire represents hell. We'll see that at the end of the book of Revelation. Then Daniel 7, 13 and 14. These, these two verses, as I said, the most significant prediction and prophecy of Jesus there is, I think. Isaiah 53, the most significant prediction of the atoning sacrifice. Daniel 7, 13 and 14, the most significant prediction of who Jesus is in his person. Look what it says. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, coming into the presence of the first person of the Trinity and receiving from him all authority in heaven and earth, as we know in the Great Commission. Receives it from him and he has the right to set up a kingdom that will never end. And all peoples and nations and men of every language will worship him. Now we Trinitarians, we who believe in the incarnation, that Jesus actually is both human. He's the son of man. He's also son of God. He's the only explanation for this vision. He is God worthy of worship, but he is not God the Father. He's not the ultimate father, king, God. He is like him and receives the right to be worshipped, but he's a separate person. Also, keep in mind, what is given to the, the Son of Man is the very thing the little horn wants. The little horn and the dragon, frankly, wants this. Authority, glory, sovereign power, all peoples, nations, men of every language to worship him. That's what, that's, they're in direct competition for that. But Jesus is going to win. Amen? He's going to get it. 
The Antichrist is not going to get it. So the vision then focuses on the fourth beast and the little horn. The key aspects of the little horn uh, are his astonishing arrogance and blasphemy and his small stature rising up to dominate. The power God gives him to attack the people of God and defeat them, slaughter them for a short time. Look at verses 19 through 22. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying, with its iron teeth and its bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. So that's a description of the worldwide empire, first Rome, but as it was in the days of Rome, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. It's going to happen even worse then. Imagine a Gestapo-like police state that can crush any opposition in the world. First armies on the field and then individuals and their personal freedoms. That's what we're talking about. Terrifying. Verse 20. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on his head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, verse 21, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them. Now, that's probably the point of all the warnings. Jesus said, when you see your brothers and sisters getting slaughtered, you're going to be tempted to abandon your faith in me. Don't. I've told you ahead of time it's going to happen. I am the resurrection and the life. They will live forever. They'll be given martyrs' welcomes into heaven, and they'll shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Don't fear. Don't lose your faith. When this starts to happen, be strong and know, I told you ahead of time. So he says the beast is given power to wage war against the saints and to defeat them physically on earth. Until, what a blessed word that is, until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints, like the ruling came down from the Supreme Court, the supremest of all Supreme Courts, in favor of the saints, your days, O Antichrist, are done. In favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. So the little horns waging war, and the Antichrist are going to kill many, like he killed the two witnesses, we already saw that in Revelation 11, very powerful witnesses, but it's the beast from the abyss that rises up, overpowers them, and kills them. He's got the power to do that. God gives it to him. All right, now here's the angel's explanation, verse 23 through 27. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom. So the beast is a kingdom that will appear on the earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise different from the early ones, and he will subdue three kings. So the Antichrist will be a king of kings. And it makes sense because right now you've got all these nations with different potentates and rulers and presidents and prime ministers. So all that's going to melt into one. So he will have political skill and military skill and all that to do that. And he'll subdue other kings, and it all gets consolidated to one. He will speak against the Most High, that's blasphemy, and will oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. What that means is he's going to try to get longer than, than three and a half years. <laughs> but it will not be granted to him. He's going to try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. Best way to interpret that from Daniel 4 is three and a half years. A time, year, times, years, half a time, half a year added up. Three and a half years. Then the sovereignty, power, greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers, that's us, rulers, will worship and obey Him, that's Jesus. 
he will be perfected. The king of righteous kings. And the Lord of righteous lords who have been saved by grace through faith. Not of wicked usurper kings, but of people who rule under him. Their domains in the new heaven and the new earth, worshiping him. It's Daniel 7. All right, now, Daniel 9, the 70 weeks. Now, some of you, probably most of you, have the right to start snickering. Because you say it's, it's almost quarter of, and you're beginning the 70 weeks now. Look, forge ahead with great courage. We're going to look at the 70 weeks with however many minutes that God gives us. All right, 70 weeks, context. Daniel, in exile in Babylon, reads from Jeremiah, the scroll of Jeremiah, the prophecy, the clear prediction that the exile to Babylon would last 70 years. He takes that back to God and begins to pray in a marvelous way in Daniel uh, chapter uh, 1, uh, 9, 1 through 19, just marvelous prayer that God would fulfill his promise that he made in Isaiah and many other places to restore the Jews back to the promised land and allow them to flourish again. So God dispatches an angel who comes and gives him the answer, and the answer is the 70 weeks. He gives Daniel more than he bargained for, and frankly, more than he can understand, and apparently more than we can understand. Basically, he goes beyond just the restoration of the Jews and the rebuilding of the temple written about in Haggai and all that. The rebuilding, he goes, goes way beyond that to definitely the time of Christ, the first coming of Christ, and him being cut off and dying, and frankly, beyond that to the end that Jesus spoke about, the abomination of desolation. So future even to Jesus when he spoke. So Daniel got a lot here in these verses. And it's a timetable, these 77s or 70 weeks. I again think the best way to understand the sevens is a seven-year period. So you've got 70 seven-year periods or weeks, so 490 years total, but they're broken up in an unusual, difficult-to-understand pattern. Told you this is hard. This is not milk. This is meat. But let's look at the verses. Daniel 9, 24 through 27. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Those are six incredible things that the 70 weeks are going to accomplish. Now, for us as Christians, all you have to do is see the word, words atone for wickedness, and you just have to know immediately. There is only one atonement there has ever been for sin and for wickedness. And that is the blood of Jesus Christ. So we're talking about the redemption, the blood of Christ. Because you don't have to wonder because it says uh, what he will do. But there's other things in that list of six. Finish transgression, put an end to sin, atone for wickedness as I mentioned. Bring in everlasting righteousness. That's eschatological glory. Okay? Seal up vision and prophecy and anoint the most holy. All right, verse 25. No one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one or Messiah, the ruler, comes. So that's like a timetable. From here to here, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Now, some of you are mathematical geniuses, like Isaac Newton. And you know that seven... And 62 is 69. So I want to commend just your mathematical prowess in doing that. I mean, it's going to take that level of wisdom and, and genius 
to interpret these things. So we've got, we're off to a good start. I have no idea why the 69 weeks are broken up into 7 and 62. Very few understand why. But if we're talking about a timetable, you just got to put them together and do the math. That's 69 times 7 years. That's 483 years. From the issuing of a decree to rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah comes. Now, when was there a decree issued to rebuild the city of Jerusalem? Who would have done that? Would have been the Medo-Persians in that era, a Persian decree. So what people generally do is reverse engineer the thing, and they find a number of such decrees because it was rebuilt in stages. Look, I can't get super precise, like Josh McDowell does, where he gets out to something like the eighth decimal point on the exact time Jesus entered Jerusalem. I find that interesting, to put it mildly. All right, just as an MIT engineer, I don't know anything measured to the eighth decimal point. Certainly not apocalyptic visionary prophecy. All right, I think, I want to think more like golf. All right, I'm not a golfer, but these 69 weeks get you on the green with about a one-inch putt. Or think of it this way, like the book of Hebrews argues. Was there anybody somewhat around 500 years after Persian rulers started to decree that Jerusalem be rebuilt that is worth our attention and study? Anybody like that at all? Yeah, Jesus. Okay, there it is. So somewhere from when Persian rulers started to issue decrees that uh, Jerusalem be rebuilt until Jesus, the Messiah, comes. 483 years. There it is. But what about that last seven Why did he stop at 69? Well, look what it says. It will be rebuilt. Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, you know, after the 69 sevens, really, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. To me, as a Christian, I feel it's easy to interpret that as the death of Jesus, rejected by the Jewish nation, that they turned their backs on him and he had no allegiance from the Jews. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city, the city of Jerusalem, and the sanctuary. They're going to destroy the sanctuary. This happened multiple times, not just once. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. That's a generalistic statement similar to Jesus' statement in Matthew 24. There'll be wars and rumors of wars. All these are just the beginning of birth pains. That covers the intervening time between the 69th uh, week and the final 70th week. So it's just... History is going to unfold. Wars and rumors of wars. Now we get to verse 27. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. One seven year period. In the middle of the seven. Okay, I need you math geniuses to help me again. What is half of seven? Okay, don't, don't answer too quickly. All right? Because I'm, I'm tricky. I'm, the, I'm a very tricky individual. But what is seven halves? Three and a half. And we're going to see that, that again and again, that three and a half, that time, times and half a time, 1260 days, 42 months. It's just the same thing again. But in the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. Either that's already happened or it's yet to come. If it's yet to come, that means there will be animal sacrifice and offering being established in a temple. Those are your options. And on a wing, some versions interpose of the temple. Sometimes it just says a wing. He will set up an abomination of desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. That's what Jesus was talking about. And he said, when you, the reader of Daniel, read, read with understanding. It's not easy to understand. 
So we've got this seven-year period still to come. And in the middle of it, after he makes a covenant to establish animal sacrifice, in the middle of it, he will stop and he will set himself up, as Paul says, in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. That's the 70 weeks. Let me push a little bit to Daniel 10 and 11. At Daniel 10, I'm only going to say a few things about Daniel 10. We meet a mighty angel who comes and gives him a revelation, similar to the mighty angel in um, the book of Revelation. Okay? And he comes and effectively tells Daniel all the content of Daniel 11 and 12. So the mighty angel comes. And in Daniel 10, 14, it's, he says, if you look at that, Daniel 10, 14, it says, Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people, the Jews, in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. So he's predicting the future. He introduces also Daniel to the name of the archangel Michael, who he designates as the special prince, an archangel, who protects the Jews as a nation. He is the same one that fought the red dragon in Revelation 12 that we talked about last time. Now, Daniel 11 is basically many antichrists and then pointing to one final antichrist who will come. Daniel 11 covers the history of the Jews under the domination of Gentile kings, first the Persians very briefly, and then the Greeks. So you have Persians and Greeks in Daniel 11. The Greeks were the successor of the first Greek king, Alexander, who rose to a height of power, and the height of his power, he was cut off and his kingdom divided into fours. This is true history. His four generals, he had no sons, Alexander, so it was given to his four generals. Two of them in particular rule over what we know as modern-day Palestine or the Promised Land. The kings of the north were the Seleucids who ruled over the Syrian area, similar to where you guys are ministering, the kings of the north. The kings of the south were the Ptolemies who ruled over Egypt and whatever. They would meet, basically, in battle again and again and again in Israel, in Palestine. So the, the Jews were like trampled on by these Greek kings as they fought each other for control. But that fight becomes an acted out drama that gives us a picture of the future Antichrist that's yet to come. That's how you interpret Daniel 11. It's not easy to interpret, but that's what's going on. In the middle of that chapter, if you look at Daniel 11, 36 and 37, one of these Greek kings, a literal king, who earlier in the chapter we can identify as Antiochus IV, called Epiphanes, because he claimed to be a god, a literal king, lived about two centuries before Christ, a Greek king. He was arrogant and blasphemous and openly defiled the Jewish temple by erecting a statue of Zeus and offering pig's blood in the Holy of Holies. Open blasphemy, a dress rehearsal of the Antichrist, but he is not the final Antichrist. He was actually just a minor Greek king who then died, and that was that. It was just a drama that was acted out. But his, his activities are predicted both in Daniel 8 and Daniel 11. The words of Daniel 11, 36 and 37, seem to go far beyond anything Antiochus ever did. Look at verses 36 and 37. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed for what has been determined must take place. He's going to win. He's going to be successful until the clock runs out on him. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but he will exalt himself above them all. 
And let me tell you something, Antiochus IV never did that. He actually honored the Greek gods. That's why he set up a statue of Zeus. These are unfulfilled words that Paul picks up on in 2 Thessalonians 2 and applies them to a yet future man of sin who's coming. Hasn't come yet in the time of Paul. In 2 Thessalonians 2, I actually like to ask that you turn there. Keep your finger in Daniel 11. Turn over to 2 Thessalonians 2. I want you to see with your own eyes what I'm talking about. It's almost a paraphrase of what we just read. 2 Timothy 2, or 2 Thessalonians, sorry. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4. The day of the Lord will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. The man of lawlessness, I think, is the Antichrist, the man of sin. He... I'm in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Now, what I'm saying is I think for that to happen, you have to have God's temple. So you need a temple. All right, now, again, the Romans, nothing like that happened when the Romans burned Jerusalem in 70 AD. As I said, Titus, who burned it down, didn't want it burned and tried to put the fire out, but it had gone too far. So that, that specific kind of arrogant self-worship blasphemy didn't happen in 70 AD. So it's yet to come. He's going to set himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Here's what I want to say. Bringing in from the book of Hebrews, God will never again accept animal sacrifice. Never. The blood of bulls and goats is done as far as God's concerned. But that doesn't mean there won't be a temple built. So I tend to put air quotes around this thing. He will set himself up in God's temple, supposedly God's temple, the temple the Jews are honoring, that they want rebuilt, proclaiming himself to be God. He is not God any more than that building is God's temple, but that's what they think. And because they think that, it actually is a good platform for incredible blasphemy. That's the way I understand what the Antichrist will do. Now, if you look later in 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 through 12, it says, The lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every kind of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion... So that they will believe the lie. And so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth. But have delighted in wickedness. That's not apocalyptic. It's not visionary. It's just an epistle. And it's telling you what's going to happen. There is this man of sin coming. He's going to set himself up in God's temple. He's going to proclaim himself to be God. He's going to do signs and wonders. And people will be deceived by it and worship him. And then Jesus is coming back and he's going to destroy him. So all of that is flowing from Daniel uh, 11. Now we have Daniel 12. Let me just cut quickly to the chase on Daniel 12. And I'll probably circle back next time I preach um, Daniel 12. Let me just tell you simply what's going to happen. And I'll give you details next time. But here's what I think. At the end of Daniel 12, which you heard read, which Zach read for us, you have a counting of days. And the angels are asking, when is, how long is it going to be? They're always asking, how long, how long, how long? And we are told in every case, we cannot know the exact time of the end. Well, here's what I'm going to assert. Pastor of First Baptist Church in Durham, North Carolina is saying, 
there will be a generation of Christians that will know exa the exact day of Jesus' return. I think that's what this is teaching. I'm not saying you or I know it. I'm not setting a date. What I'm saying is that this 42-month period, this 1260-day period, this three-and-a-half-year period has been spelled out again and again and again and again so clearly that we are waiting for something like that to happen. Jesus told us when the abomination of desolation is set up, start the clock. So it's like this kind of meter-length thing coming from the Bureau of Standards and Measures. We don't know where to lay it down, but when we get the start point, then we'll know how long it's going to be for Jesus to return. Even more fascinating, at the end of Daniel 12, there's 1,290 days, that's 30 more days, and 1,335 days, that's 45 more days beyond that, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? And Daniel was interested and he asked and he said, I don't get it. And he said, Daniel, it's not for you. Close it up and seal it until the time of the end. The people who live then, they'll understand. So when you see the abomination of desolation, start the clock. And if you're living in those days that if they had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. You'll want to know how many more days we have to go through because it's going to be so horrible. And you will get to know. Now here's, here's my, my final word. This is my favorite part. And you guys, I've pushed you a little bit. I'm going to push you one more minute. Do you remember how Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Okay? I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 7. Genesis chapter 7. And look at verse 4. I know we're told, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. I know in Acts chapter 1, the disciples, the apostles were told, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father set by his own authority, but you'll receive power and the Holy Spirit comes in, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. Well, when Jesus said, no one knows, not even the Son, but only the Father, we all know he knows now. He knew when he ascended to heaven. So what he's saying is no one knows now that day. When he said in Acts 1, it's not for you to know the times or days because Jesus isn't coming back later that afternoon. You have work to do. You have to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. So as I said last week, effectively you need to build an ark where people can be rescued from the wrath to come. As it was in the days of Noah, there was a place of refuge that you could go to. The ark's not made of wood now. It's not made of gopher wood. It's not covered with pitch. It's a gospel message. It's, the, it's an invisible church into which you enter and you find safety from the wrath to come. Our job is to build that ark. But now, as it was in the days of Noah, in Genesis 7 and verse 4, God said to Noah, Genesis 7, 4, seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Do you see that? And I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. Seven days from now. A week before that statement was made, did Noah know the exact day of the flood? No. What was he supposed to do? Finish the ark. A month before that statement, did he know the exact day of the flood? No. Finish the ark. A year before, he didn't know. Finish the ark. Let me ask you a question. After that statement was made, two days later, did he know the exact time the flood would come? Oh, yes. It's coming in five days. 
And the next day, it's coming in four days. And the next day, it's coming in three, two, one. Today, the flood comes. And so it did. So as it was in the days of Noah, I believe there will be a counting down. It's not for us. I don't see the abomination of desolation. It's not been set up. It's not the Roman Catholic Church. It's not other cults or false leaders. It's not that. Our job is to build the ark, to preach the gospel until the Lord returns. But there will be a generation that will need to know. And they'll understand the 1260 days. They'll understand the 1290 days and the 1335 days. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the details that we've studied in the book of Daniel today, getting ready for Revelation 13. Lord, I thank you for all the things that we can learn from studying this incredible prophet. I thank you for the things that we learn in the book of Revelation. Give us perseverance to be able to chew on the meat and swallow. Help us to put together a chronology and an understanding of what's yet to come. But in the meantime, oh God, help us to build that ark. Help us to be like Marty and Chandler and like like, uh, godly parents uh, that were raising Matt and and others, Lord, help us to do our role of leading people to Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us this morning? Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.